Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of the 5 by where we have another flight of board game segments on offer, giving you a taste of five different titles. This time around, Mason discusses the classic card game Canasta, while Luke sets off into the world of classic board games with an exploration of Kramer and Kiesling's Mass Trilogy, starting off with Mexica. I'll be taking a look at the adorable T-Rex's holiday from Taiwan, while Sarah looks at Block Block from Japan. But first of all, Meeple Lady is here to talk about Sikatsu, so grab your favorite beverage and get comfortable as we sample some games for you. The past year or so, though challenging, has given me a new perspective on things. I'm grateful for friends and family and for the chance to really focus on what matters most to me. I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences during the pandemic and that we can all agree were forever changed by the events of the last 16 months. Perspective can be such a personal concept, but let's talk more about the tangible definition of perspective. The appearance to the eye of objects in respect to their relative distance and positions. This plays a key part in the board game Seikatsu. Seikatsu, released in 2017 from IDW Games, was designed by Matt Loomis and Isaac Shalev. Seikatsu, a word that means life in Japanese, is all about players tending to a garden that they share with their opponents where the player with the best view, the perspective from their pagoda, is of the utmost importance. The game comes with a board, three scoring pawns shaped like sakura flowers, and a cloth bag with garden tiles. These garden tiles are what drew me to the game. They're circular and acrylic, like sturdy thin poker chips. They're just a delight to hold in your hand and to fish for one when you're drawing one from the bag. And while this game is for two to four players, it's essentially a three-player game. As when you play with four people, they team up to be on two different teams. Hence that there are only three scoring pawns. There's also a solo variant for this game, but I've personally never played that. So to begin in a three-player game, rotate the board in between the three players so that each player is directly facing one of the pakotas on the board. You place the garden tiles minus the koi tiles, which I'll explain them later, in the bag, and draw three of them to place around the koi pond in the center of the board. The koi tiles are then placed into the bag and each player draws two tiles for their hand, which is kept secret from their opponents. The rulebook says the wisest person goes first, so naturally I'll be going first every time. Each garden tile features a bird and a flower printed on it. There are four types of flowers, and there are four types of birds, and each flower and bird appear on exactly eight garden tiles. Thus, there are only two duplicates of each of the 16 different garden tiles. The board is awash with the calming color palette of pastel blue, pink, and green. And the bird and koi tiles follow that same chirpy garden aesthetic. Players take turns placing one of their tiles from their hands onto a space on the board and then score their placement. At the end of their turn, they draw a garden tile from the bag to refill their hand of two tiles. Gameplay continues until there are no more open spots on the board. When placing a tile, you must place a tile adjacent to another one. When you place a bird that matches one adjacent to it, you create a flock of birds and score one point for each bird in that flock. If there are no adjacent birds that match the tile you just placed, you score zero points for that turn. If you place a koi tile from your hand, that tile becomes a wild card to match any bird of your choosing when placed onto the board and is scored accordingly for only that turn. That koi tile will then become a dead tile and won't score any points for anyone on future turns. So where do the flowers come in? They come into play at the end of the game. 
Once everyone is finished placing all their tiles on the board, final scoring occurs and this is where perspective matters. To score flowers, each player must look down the rows of tiles from their perspective of their pagoda. For each row, they score the largest group of one single type of flower. The scoring gets exponentially larger. One flower is one point, two flower is three points, three for six, four for ten, five for fifteen, and six for twenty-one points. After the flower scores have been determined, the player with the most points wins the game. In the case of a tie, the tied player who is last in turn order wins. And this placement decision, choosing to place a tile for the bird or flower scoring, the now versus later, is what makes this gorgeous game really interesting to me. What seemingly looks like a peaceful tile-laying game adds a level of strategy that my puzzle-loving brain revels in. But remember, players share the garden space and you're competing with them and their perspective to maximize scoring each turn. Each tile you place may score lots of points for them at the end of the game, and those decisions elevate this game from just a casual stroll in the garden. And that's Seikatsu. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Although I've been a board gamer for close to three decades now, I still find myself coming to certain games late. In the Eurogame boom of the late 90s, early aughts, I fell down the Catan rabbit hole like so many others, following a predictable path through the greatest hits. While I don't regret that path, a few games got left behind that I wish I'd had a little more time with over the years, like Mexica. Like many other gamers, I was introduced to Mexica through Shut Up and Sit Down's review in 2016. I'd never heard of it before, and even after watching the review, I was still somehow oblivious that it was a reprint, which is a shame because it means I took way too long to discover the brilliance of Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer's design partnership. For another 5 by perspective on Mexica, check out Meeple Lady's review in episode 44. Mexica covers the founding and expansion of the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan over the 12th and 13th centuries. Players represent competing segments of Aztec society, each trying to carve out and control their own districts, or calpuli, within the city by building surrounding canals and ensuring their own religious dominance through the placement of temples. The game board grid represents the combined islands in Lake Tichcoco, where the cities of Tenochtitlan and Tlatelolco eventually merged into a single metropolis. Players fill that grid using an action point allocation system. You start each turn with six action points to spend on constructing canals, building bridges over canals, building temples, and moving your Pili Mexica, the community leader responsible for overseeing your districts, around the map. Points are scored in two ways, by founding districts during play, and by controlling districts at the end of the game's two periods. Founding a district is simple, in theory, just surround an area with canals, but more difficult in practice because the tiles used for founding can only be placed in districts of an exact number of spaces. When a district is founded, all players with Pili Mexica present in that district earn points, with the founder earning more. At the beginning of the game, a random selection of Kalpuli tokens for founding districts will be available, and each player will have nine temples in their possession. When either all the Kalpuli tokens have been played, or one player runs out of temples, the first half ends and players score points for holding a religious majority based on the combined value of their temples in each district. The second round begins with a fresh crop of Kapuli tokens, and each player taking possession of their last nine temples. Play again continues until one or the other is depleted. At that point, all the districts on the board score, including unfounded ones, which are worth half the points, and whoever has the most points wins. 
Your Pili Mexica is your most important piece, since they must be present in a district for you to either build a temple or found the district. In one of Mexica's more interesting tactical twists, overland movement costs one action point per space, but for the same cost, a Pili Mexica can move from any bridge they occupy to any other bridge on the map directly connected by water. It's very unlikely you'll be able to build and found one of the larger districts in a single turn, so figuring out how to build it in a way to A, prevent your opponents from finishing it first, and B, prevent them from effectively teleporting into it using that bridge movement adds a nice little bit of strategic crunch. The emergent strategies that bloom from Mexica's limited actions and the overall elegance of their interactions offer a surprising amount of depth for a game that seems, on the surface, so simple. And although lacking direct player interaction, you're not fighting in the streets for dominance of Tenochtitlan, that wouldn't happen until the Spanish show up in 1519, there is just enough jockeying for district control and moving or blocking bridges to limit access to keep Mexico supremely engaging even when it's not your turn. Like any game that's mostly numbers, AP can creep in at the edges, especially when you're trying to calculate a lot of second place finishes toward the end of a round and math out your optimal path for control, but I've found it to rarely cause a major delay, even with players who tend to obsess over optimization. Back in 2016, my only real exposure to area control had been dudes on a map slugfests like Axis and Allies, Blood Rage, and Kemet, all of which had convinced me I genuinely didn't enjoy area control. I had already fallen headlong in love with Eurogames, and the notion of combining the two was still just a nascent idea for me. Mexica not only introduced me to a new way of thinking about area control, but to a whole new host of possibilities in board game theming. I'd been inundated with games about merchants in the Mediterranean and building medieval French cities, but the only other game I'd seen set in Mesoamerica was Tzolkin, a game nearly a decade newer than the original release of Mexica. While the original Rio Grande version of Mexica is fine, it still falls squarely into the standard aesthetic blandness of Turn of the Millennium Euros. The redesign by Super Meeple, published in the US by Yellow, elevates the game at every level. It's colorful and vibrant, with great symbology and a punchy art style, all brought together by illustrators Paul Mafayon and Christoph Swall. In addition to all those improvements, Super Meeple further up the ante with custom-shaped meeples and phenomenal, chunky, resin-cast temples that give the game a stunning table presence. I bought Mexica on a whim, based on a single review, and I have never regretted that decision. As the complexity curve in board gaming continues to climb, Mexica feels genuinely elegant and can still hold its own in a crowded industry nearly two decades later. And the new coat of paint certainly doesn't hurt. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Canasta. It's been a while since I covered a traditional card game. Schnapsen, I think, back in episode 82, or early March of last year before everything went sideways. So about a month ago, I downloaded several Canasta apps, read the Packet.com rules, and started playing against the AI pretty much daily. In the last month, between my phone and desktop PC, I've played about 300 hands of Canasta, which is somewhere around 50 full games. Well, unlike the folk card games I've talked about in the past, Canasta is actually an invented game, albeit one adapted from traditional rummy. For more on this, check out Philip Orban's August 2000 Games Magazine article entitled The Canasta Story. Lucky for you, it's bonus content for this episode. Check the show notes for the audio link. But by the early 1950s, Canasta had spread to the U.S., and for a few years it threatened to unseat Bridge as the choice game of serious adult card parties all over this country. Canasta is a double French deck rummy game. That's two 54-card decks shuffled together. Don't forget the jokers, they're important. I'm going to tell you the basic outline of a game of Canasta, but there are lots of different variants, card club versions, regional styles, house rules, etc. 
so do not treat any of this as gospel, simply as the most common set of rules. In classic canasta, you're playing a partnered rummy melding game. You and your partner across the table are playing on the same meld piles and attempting to build canastas, or runs of seven cards of the same rank, and in doing so, score more points than the opposing team. Suits don't matter in canasta, but colors do matter for threes. Twos and jokers are wild, but playing wild cards into a seven-card run makes a canasta dirty and worth fewer points. Threes are weird, red threes meld automatically, and black threes are stop cards. And this all sounds ridiculous and hard to parse, I know, but after a couple of games, you start to go, oh, no, yeah, yeah, I totally understand now. So you start with this hand of 11 cards, and you're just trying to make melds. If you've played other rummy games before, you'll pick up canasta quickly. If you haven't, a meld is any three cards of the same rank. Three sevens, three kings, three tens, etc. In classic canasta, a run is any set of like-ranked cards over three. Some variations, like modern American canasta, cap that run at seven cards, mostly just to make the game harder. Now, on your turn, you'll draw from the stock, play a meld if you can, and then discard a card. The discard pile is what canasta is all about. At the beginning of your turn, if you can make a meld using the top card of the discard, you get to take the whole pile. So the game mostly becomes about controlling the discards and preventing your opponents from taking the pile. You can do this by discarding a black three, which prevents the next player from taking anything off the pile, or by discarding a wild card, dangerous and ugly but sometimes necessary. In freezing the discard, you hamstring yourself as well. A frozen discard pile can only be taken by making a natural meld from your hand. Ugh. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, an unfrozen discard will let you pick up and add to a meld. So let's say you have a meld of sevens and the player to your right discards a seven, either on accident or because they have no choice, you could then pick up the whole discard pile since you can meld the top card. So you don't discard anything you know the other team can meld from if you can help it. There are exceptions to this, obviously, but that's a strategy thing. Canasta is a points game, so fours, fives, and sixes are worth five points each, eights through kings are worth ten points, aces and twos are worth twenty, and the four jokers are worth fifty points each. Natural canastas, that's melds of seven or eight cards with no wild, are worth 500 points, and dirty melds, or melds that have wild cards, are only worth 300. Going out, or discarding the last card in your hand after you have at least one canasta, ends the hand and gets you another 100 points. I tell you all this because every choice you make in canasta is about the points and the points spread. There are going to be hands that you know you will lose just looking at the cards you are dealt. Your task then is to go out as quickly as possible and mitigate damage from the other team. Each hand is only one part of a game that plays to 5,000 points, or at least for four-player. There's also an initial meld rule that forces you to make a certain score on your opening meld. That limit increases along with your score, acting sort of as a curb to a runaway leader or a very lucky early hand. Canasta can be incredibly tense, especially as the discard pile increases and fills up with heavy points cards or is full of canastas of a rank everyone felt safe to throw off. What do I discard is the essential question on your turn, and making a poor choice recently elicited a string of swears so vile that I caused Megan to come in the living room and say, hey, are you okay? Just playing against the computer, I've had glorious come-from-behind victories and bad beats so infuriating that I wanted to throw my phone against a wall. There's a reason Canasta became so popular in the 50s. It's easier to learn than bridge, it's more of a gut game, less of a calculation, and the emergence and competition can be an emotional roller coaster. I'd recommend getting a Canasta set that has point numbers written on the cards. You can do it with a Sharpie, but a bicycle Canasta set is only about $8. If you're very classy, you'll buy the imported Piatnik set for twice that, and those cards are Austrian-made and they shuffle like a dream. You'll also probably want a canasta tray. It's not only traditional, it also helps everything except for the top discard from being visible, which is important. You might also look at getting a copy of Canasta Caliente from Winning Moves Games. It doesn't have traditional card art, and it might feel more like a hobby game for your friends who think they're too cool for French deck rummy games. My favorite Android canasta app is from Carman, K-A-R-M-A-N Games. It's free with ads, and frankly, the best PC version is any of the Hoyle official card games for Windows. I have the 2013 version, and it runs just fine on Windows 10. There are, of course, lots of places to play Canasta online against real people. 
but you shouldn't even think about it until you've played a few hundred hands against the AI. You'll just get embarrassingly thrashed like I did. So who should play Canasta? People who like four-player games, people who like rummy games, people who like games that don't cost any money, and people looking for a traditional card game that's part strategy, part memory, part card counting, part deduction, and all guts. I give Canasta 5,000 out of 5,000 points for melding a dozen cards on my final turn and going out by discarding the one card that the other team needed for a natural Canasta to beat us. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost and on Board Game Arena and Board Game Geek as Breakfast Core. Keep wearing a mask, keep keeping your distance, and if you're not vaccinated yet, get vaccinated as soon as you're able. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. This episode, I wanted to talk about the adorable T-Rex's holiday designed by Wang Yu. This 2019 roll and write is published by Blue Magpie Games and distributed by TBD. Playing 2-8 to eight players in roughly 20 minutes, the game is themed around the antics of your adorable short-limbed cat, T-Rex, who apparently invites over a crowd of adorable feline friends to play, making every day a holiday. The heart of T-Rex's holiday is the pad of score sheets, which show the various areas of the home in which T-Rex and friends have their fun. Each section has different areas in which die results can be written, along with its own rules for said placements and for scoring. In the stacks and posts area, any number can go anywhere, but an individual scratching post or stack of boxes will only score if all the numbers within it match. The sets of cans area is similar. It shows three groups of four cat food cans and any number can go on any can, but only sets that total 14 or 15 at the end of the game are worth points, so players need to manage their placements. The rows of train cars area and the carp streamers section, however, have stricter rules on how numbers must be placed, either ascending or descending, to be a legal placement. Setup takes about as long as you need to find each player a writing utensil and hand them a score sheet. Each round, the active player rolls three dice and keeps the results hidden behind their hand. They then choose one to keep secret and reveal the remaining pair to the table. All players must then write the numbers shown on the public dice somewhere on their score sheet. The secret die, also called the T-Rex die, is then revealed, and its result must be added to each player's sheet if possible. But it can only be placed within the particular section designated by its value. The dice are then passed to the next player to start another round. Play continues until someone is unable to place both of the public die results on their sheet. Not being able to place the T-Rex die number is fine. Players will then score their sheets and declare a winner. T-Rex's Holiday is a fun push-your-luck game that makes you attempt to plan ahead for random die rolls, a fun puzzle that has you optimizing number placement, and a fun quick way to get players interacting due to the roll 3 pick 2 aspect of the game. That hidden T-Rex die adds a level of decision-making that enhances gameplay and leads to groans and jeers as you reveal your choice to the table, potentially forcing others to make suboptimal moves. It makes you pay attention to your opponent's sheets in a way that not all roll and writes do, and it forces players to try and plan ahead for those surprise reveals. But as the game includes a way to fix errors in judgment by using earned cat biscuits to delete already placed numbers, it doesn't get too mean, which is appropriate given the theming of the game. That theming is entirely thanks to Kenoro Huang's adorable illustrations featuring a variety of cats and the occasional dog cavorting around each area's toys and their associated number boxes. The delightful art not only doesn't obstruct the functionality of the sheet, but it actually helps. For example, a cat in each section gives a handy reminder of placement and scoring rules, and a sign by the rows of train cars reminds players that writing a six on one of them will immediately finish the row and earn them a biscuit. The three translucent dice feature cute, colorful cat heads behind their numbers, and the box is also delightful, 
looking like a torn-up package with the contents visible through cat scratches. The International Edition even has an English-language sleeve that fittingly looks like airmail, complete with stamps of the publisher's logo and a few of Huang's sweet cats. Being a Taiwanese game, T-Rex's Holiday isn't necessarily going to be on the shelves of your local game store. It is, however, easily picked up online, and I personally would recommend getting it straight from TBD, also known as Taiwan Board Game Design. TBD distribute games from a number of Taiwanese publishers worldwide. I've ordered from their store multiple times with items coming quickly and well-packed, and they also have a French storefront for those in Europe so I do encourage you to take a look at what they have on offer. Their website even includes a link to a free print-and-play version of T-Rex's Holiday, letting you try the game for free. So download the score sheet and rolls, add some dice and pens, and give this delightful roll-and-write a try. If nothing else, you'll get to spend 15 minutes or so looking at cute animals while trying to mess up your friend's plans. Until next time, I'm off to make sure my cats aren't throwing a party downstairs, but feel free to let me know your favorite cat-themed board game. You can find me on Twitter, at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Do you love polyomino games, but wish they were chunkier? A little less two-dimensional? Then you might want to check out Block Block, a quick, clever two-player game about stacking wooden blocks. Designed by Roy Nambu with art by Tanago, and published in 2018 by Japanese game company Pen and Dice, Block Block was difficult to get in the U.S. until Big Cat Games made it available in 2020 via a Kickstarter campaign. Block Block still isn't available with major U.S. retailers, but you can get it from the Big Cat Games website. One caveat, the name, Block period Block, is a bit difficult to search for online. It's not as bad as the game, but it's in that territory. You're better off just going to the Big Cat Games site and looking for it in their catalog. The rules of Block Block are so simple they fit on one small sheet of paper without tiny type. Each player has a set of colored wooden blocks in various polyomino shapes. Players take turns stacking the blocks on the play area, which is a small grid. At the end of the game, you score by counting the squares in each color while looking at the board from above. The winner is the player with the most of their color visible. At first glance, Block Block might look like a purely tactical game. Just place each block in the spot where it will give you the most immediate benefit. But it isn't. You really do need to think ahead. You're trying to cover your opponent's blocks, but not your own, without creating shapes that will be easy for them to fill with the blocks they have remaining, but still leaving spaces where the blocks you have remaining will fit. There are a few placement rules that help keep Block Block from being too simplistic. First, a block can't be placed to leave any empty space under it. Each block has to be completely supported, either by the board or other blocks. A block can't be placed to completely cover another block of the exact same shape. It has to be either oriented differently or only partly overlapping. Players can never use blocks of the same shape on subsequent turns. And if a player is ever unable to place a block, they lose immediately. Those are basically all the rules of Block Block. And those few simple rules lead to some interesting decisions. Especially with the larger blocks, if you play them too early, they just get covered over completely and you get no points from them. But if you wait too long, you might end up with no good place to put them. Now, there are so few blocks, 11 for the start player, 10 for the other, that it's unlikely the board could ever get filled in such a way that you literally couldn't place a block. I'm sure it's possible, but I've never seen it happen. 
But you can end up losing the advantage, having to turn a block on its side and only cover a couple of squares, where if you'd played it earlier, you might have covered three or four. Timing is especially important with the long, skinny blocks, which have the other player's color on the ends. This means that if you have to play them standing up, they score for your opponent, not you. This is a powerful incentive to get those blocks out there when there's still space on the board to play them laying flat. There is a bit of an advantage to not going first in block block. Since the goal is to cover your opponent's blocks, it's better for you if they go first and you can react to whatever they did. I never found it too lopsided in favor of the second player, though. Due to the varied block shapes, you can't just build up in one narrow stack. Much as you might try to recreate a Jenga tower, you have to start building out eventually, which creates more surfaces to interact with. Still, to help even out the balance, the start player gets one additional block, a cube worth a half point, which is always placed last. That final block means there can never be a tie in block block, which I'm sure will be a relief to those who have that aversion to ties, which I've never really fully understood. Where I do think block block can become lopsided is if one of the players has a better spatial sense than the other. It seems almost too obvious to say this, but the game relies so heavily on one skill, fitting blocks together in a three-dimensional space, that if one of the players is better at that than the other, then they will dominate. What I'm saying is, if there's someone in your family who's so good at packing the car for road trips that you joke about their car Tetris, or one person in your game group who always puts the components back in the box because they're the only one who can get everything to fit so the lid will close, maybe don't play Block Block with that person unless you like losing. When I first saw Block Block, I thought it was going to be like Blockus Duo or Polyomino board games like Patchwork. But once I started playing it, it reminded me much more of Santorini. Stacking things one at a time, creating a three-dimensional shape, trying to take the good moves away from your opponent while still leaving them available for yourself. It has such a fun, puzzly feeling. The chunky wooden blocks are so satisfying to handle, and the game plays so quickly. The box says 5 to 10 minutes, and for once, that's accurate. Block Block is a great game when you want a few minutes of fun and you don't have the time or mental energy for a bigger game that would take hours to play. A gaming snack, if you will. And that's Block Block. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you want to chat about other great Japanese import games. Then I really want to hear from you. You've been listening to The Five Eye, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5bygames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5bygames. From all of us at the 5 Buy, thanks for listening. Thank you.